I'm Tash McGill. And I'm Vincent Herringer. And this is The Feed, a weekly wrap of the news, views and skews on New Zealand food, drink and everything in between. The feed is for those who grow food. The ones who make, harvest and forage. Who package, ship and sell food. Most importantly, for those who eat food and like to talk about it. So join us at thefeed.co.nz and now, welcome to The Feed Weekly. This week we're talking about New Zealanders' table manners as some of us get back out to dining out. The Waikato region has launched its own foodies campaign to get hospitality venues fully vaccinated. New Zealand is losing its global Savion Blanc share to Brexit and COVID woes. And we talked to Bex Coe of the fast-becoming iconic brand Cook & Nelson about being in the business of food and beverage importing during a pandemic and how they've found their way to bringing unique premium brands to market in New Zealand. It's a really great chat. But in the meantime, what's been happening in the lockdown life of Vincent Herring. Oh gee, it's uh, it's just gripping actually, day 53 and uh, the view hasn't changed, but um, otherwise good, you know, the sun is out, uh, I'm feeling like barbecues are on and uh, we're going to experiment tonight with meeting people uh, at a distance, foreign people, you know, people who aren't part of our bubble, so very exciting. <laughs> the big question of course, will or will there not be a bathroom? <laughs> well, there are trees, let me just say. <laughs> and as as a friend of mine says, you know, their lemon tree only grows so well because their husband goes out constantly to the garden to pee on it. Anyway. Please pee on my lemon tree. Nice. That, that was knows? always the name of a book we were going to write about raising boys if we ever did one. Oh, well, there you go. Excellent. Uh, well, I did get the barbecue out last uh, last weekend. Um, took a crack at some some shorties, some shorties on the uh, on the old barbecue, and a great chance to make a batch of my surefire spicy barbecue sauce. And delicious, just as good as I remember hmm. it always. How been. about that? And uh, did the sun stay out long enough for you to actually have a barbecue? Because it's been patchy. It must be said. Uh, no, no, it was definitely a case of barbecue outdoors and then come inside to escape from the rain. <laughs> but, you know, we, t- we take anything we can get these days. Absolutely. Well, Fairgo have done one of their legendary shopping basket reviews, and you can guess, can you guess what they found? We have priced a basket of 13 items for which we already had been tracking data at the same three Auckland supermarkets, Pack and Save, Countdown, and A New World in the same area, competing with each other for your grocery dollars. This was on September 29, they said. And here are the results, Tash. At New World, that basket has risen 4.3%. That's from $74.68 would now be $77.93. At Pack and Save, it also has risen 2.9% from $62.37 to $64.23. But at Countdown, it has gone down a drop of 2.8%. $74.09 in April would now be $72 square. So how about that? You know, things go up and down. What's your experience of grocery prices at the moment, Tash? Well, look, I think that the average shopping basket has probably gone up. I think that that's accurate. But as we come into summer, there's a little bit more uh, seasonal veg coming on. You know, perhaps some of those prices drop. I think what is more interesting that I'm seeing at the moment is is the long the long running shortages. So my local supermarket hasn't had brown sugar on the shelf for nearly five weeks. Um, an abundance of two minute noodles. But you know, I think you know those those prices are bound to 
ebb and flow and of course it's hard to you know track across um, something like you know a regular basket survey what is the actual usual price of something you know how much should a kilo of flour really cost Um, what I think is interesting about this is that it kind of brings us back to the comcom conversation and and some of the the broader industry chat that's been happening there so Woolworths and foodstuffs have both you know they've accepted they've said publicly they've accepted the need for a code of conduct um, for the grocery industry to protect shoppers and suppliers, you know, to make sure that price rises are keeping with inflation, but that they're not out of control. Um, and then there's this big question about unit pricing being made standard. That's what that's what the big supermarket players would like to see. Um, and actually Woolworths, which here we know is Countdown, they actually want the commission to define what usual price is really clearly so that shoppers actually know what a discounted special is based on so that there's some more of that, I guess, consumer clarity and transparency. So I think, you know, it's really interesting uh, what's happening in that conversation and it will be even more interesting to see where we get to in terms of deciding what is the price of fish. Yeah. I mean, the price of fish really is determined by supply and demand and then by competition. And really the true, the only true way to find the price of things is for there to be competition. So, you know, that third major player needs to be in the market for these two uh, giants to feel the pain, I think, of pricing. So, yeah, interesting to watch. And then the the other thing that's happening, sort of bubbling in the background, is this sort of uh, rising interest rate overall. And that's why the Reserve Bank raised their OCR rate, because there is this sort of sense globally and in New Zealand that interest rates are back, uh, back on the rise. I'm a fan, to be fair. I'm a fan. Bring them back, I say. Some controllable, some controllable variables at last. <laughs> A delight. <laughs> and now it's time for the news. The hospital industry is calling on New Zealanders to have better table manners with escalating no-shows likely to have dire financial consequences. With the hospitality industry almost crippled by the prolonged shutdown, Kiwis are being asked to support their favourite venues by having better table manners. Restaurant no-shows have escalated since pre-COVID, a trend that could destroy some restaurants and bars when operating under such restrictions. Data from online reservation platform ResDiary reveals that people's failure to cancel bookings and then not show up has skyrocketed by 300% in 2021 compared to 2019, resulting in huge financial losses and stress. Restaurateur Nick Watt takes the credit card bookings for his group reservations and premium occasions with a fee for no-shows or last-minute cancellations. He would support an industry move to ensure consistency. If it's an industry approach, great. I suspect individual restaurants would be mindful of not putting any customers off after these past few months, says Nick. Now, it just seems like common courtesy. I mean, you get charged if you don't turn up to your dentist. Fair enough. Absolutely. I think that would be great. And of course, it's quite interesting because we'd moved, we'd experienced this sort of shift towards more of a global culture of, you know, no reservations, walk-in only. That was that was the dominant trend of restaurant bookings. And so now, of course, we've seen bookings back yeah. in a big way. Uh, but perhaps, you know, we've forgotten just, you know, some of that good behaviour. Good behaviour. And also, um, just sorry to interrupt, but, you know, it's nothing like actually owning a business to remind you just how difficult it is to own a business. And I think at... Gee, you know, would it if for? Let me phrase that again. Uh, I think it'd be great if, at any stage in your life, you could own a business just to experience the stress of being a small business owner. It's quite good for you. 
that's a that's a weird kind of roundabout logic that <laughs> I may need to think about some more before I decide whether or not to leave it in the final ed- edit of this podcast. <laughs> Do carry on. But there you go, a little a little behind the scenes. The Courier Evening uh, the Courier Evening Telegraph in Scotland is reporting on a shortage of wine and in particular New Zealand wine as the majority of wine in the UK is imported. Brexit, COVID, the HTV lorry driver shortage and numerous staffing issues across the country are now having a knock-on effect on retailers and suppliers. The wider wine industry has been affected by other aspects as well. Here in New Zealand, it's been a bit of a perfect storm. Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is by far our most popular white wine, and a lot of the entry-level Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc is not going to be available in the UK of the 2021 vintage. And then once the 2020s run out, we're going to have to wait a few months for the 2022 vintage. Patrick Aiken, he is both a retailer and a wholesaler. He says, it's our best-selling white style by a mile both in the bar and in the shop for that style of Sauvignon Blanc we're now pushing customers towards Chile no. or South Africa who also produce cool climate Sauvignon Blanc there's the wines are just as fresh and just as zingy and the style that people are looking for but from a different place he says customers usually head straight for the New Zealand wine but there are equally good wines coming from these other places something must be done New Zealand cannot lose its place as Sauvignon Blanc champion of the world meanwhile back home hamilton-based craft brewery good george has launched a special vaccine themed lager called vaximates the goal the brewery says is for the new brew to be a conversation starter to encourage those who are on the fence or on the couch to get vaccinated we're brewers not vaccine experts they admit but we've listened to the experts and the evidence is clear says uh, good george head of community dick daniel mcgregor we call it Vaxtimates because we want to highlight the good that comes from vaccination, the ability to make uh, a shift back towards normal. So much of the dialogue focuses on the negative and people who choose not to vaccinate. We would like to focus on those that do and on the upside that results, McGregor said. Uh, speaking also of vaccination campaigns, you can tell that the hospitality industry is just desperate to get back to work. Waikato Food Inc. has launched a campaign to get people vaccinated. The hospitality industry does continue to be one of the hardest hit by COVID-19, and it's clear that the government will only stop lockdowns and restrictions when over 90% of the New Zealand population is vac- vaccinated, Waikato Food Inc. says. So the board has gathered together and they want to do all they can to help the industry. They believe one of the best ways they can do that is to help speed up the vaccination rate in the Waikato and they've launched a campaign, Shot Waikato. They're encouraging eateries around the Waikato to send a shot of their team who have all had the shot and they're asking Waikato foodies to send photos in as well. The whole point is to share their photographs of getting the shot, having a great lineup of prizes ready to go. It's all about making sure that both uh, the teams of staff that are working in hospitality venues and people who are entering those venues have all had the shot. Interestingly enough, the Waikato lags behind the national average right now for both people having had both doses, and by far it is those between 12 and 40, 44 that are the least vaccinated group, but also the age group that is most likely to be found working in the hospitality sector. So, mm, go Waikato. Waikato. New Zealand, <laughs> this is one uh, This is dear to my heart, New Zealand is a better place than many other countries to embrace regenerative agriculture due to existing pastoral systems. But a lack of a clear definition is holding us back, new research has found. The research, commissioned by Beef and Lamb New Zealand and New Zealand Wine Growers, looked at how well positioned the country is to make to take advantage of the glowing, a growing global trend towards regenerative farming practices. 
Beef and Lamb Chief Executive Sam MacGyver said that while in its infancy, regenerative agriculture was gaining momentum and is set to become a significant food trend internationally. Farmers need to act before competitors take the opportunity, he said. Some New Zealand farming practices, such as rotational grazing and the use of diverse pastures, already meet regenerative principles, but there is room for more. Uh, and that is a story that will be ongoing. And in fact, very this very week, there will be a piece by me published on the feed discussing that report and the many exciting things that could come from this discussion, Tash, around regenerative farming. I am all about regenerative farming. I'm also about changing the narrative um, that some people seem to have around, you know, farmers in New Zealand, where actually I think, you know, the majority of farmers that I know are really committed to doing everything they can um, to take care of the planet, to take care of their soil and to take care of their of their product. So I'm very excited. I will be um, probably first to read it, I think, all things right. considered. <laughs> Head to our Instagram page this week and tag the friends you'd love to share a cheese platter with because thanks to our friends at the New Zealand Specialty Cheese Association, we are giving away some incredible cheese hampers to help you celebrate New Zealand Cheese Month with deliciousness and some Rutherford and Meyer platter essentials. So get on there, the Feed NZ, whether it's Instagram or Facebook, get tagging, get sharing, and we will be giving them away so you can enjoy a tasty morsel or two. Rocktober with cheese. I like it. And now for the main course. Tash spoke with Bex Coey, one half of the husband and wife team that started Cook and Nelson, bringing legendary brands such as McClure's Pickles and Seedlip to New Zealand since, well, ages ago. Over to you, Tash. Bex, so stoked to have you with us today. Can you tell me a little bit about the Cook and Nelson story? How did it begin? Uh, what, were its, what, were, what were its seedling germinations of an idea and how has it come into being? Yeah, well, Cook & Nelson is a uh, import and marketing company that I've started with my husband, Nick. Um, and it started like every great Kiwi stories is an idea that we kind of thought could be cool and really had very, very little uh, knowledge of the uh, ins and outs of a food import business. Uh, I was in the music industry and we were living in Wellington with Nick's work and we just had our first child, our daughter, Ella. And I decided that I wanted to live in Auckland. And Nick at the time uh, had been in radio sales for about 17 years or so, and he wanted a change and had been making a hot sauce called Huffman's Hot Sauce out of Wellington. And he said, I want to make hot sauce full time. So we sold a house and we moved to Auckland into the, the, probably one of the smallest little flats that you could find with our daughter uh, by my parents. And um, yeah, we're like, let's, let's start a company. And at the time we just were doing the hot sauce and, uh, we moved into a space on Cook and Nelson Streets, so at City Works Depot, um, hence the name. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were just like, right, okay, let's rebrand a hot sauce. And at the same time, it then won a world championship in Louisiana for best hot sauce, which for a New Zealand hot sauce is pretty awesome. Um, and the Australian um, exporter for Huffman said, oh, we um, sell a lot of these pickles in Australia called McClure's Pickles. You should try selling them in New Zealand. And so we thought, brilliant. So we got delivered to our office on Cook and Nelson Street, a pallet, which was a third McClure's, a third Lily's Q barbecue sauce, and a third noble maple syrup. And Nick and I had no furniture in our office, and we stared at this pallet, and we thought, what 
are we going to do with that? You know, and as an importer, we weren't a local product. So, um, you know, a lot of the smaller grocers were supporting local and we um, weren't big enough to be in supermarkets. So we literally walked around every single store who could possibly sell our product and knocked on the door. And that's literally how Coco Nelson started. Um, a guy who was working with me in music, he was on his OE. So he, every time he was in an internet cafe, he would make our website. Um, our friend made our logo for a box of beers. Uh, and literally, like, every Kiwi story started very small. And, um, and we've just literally had to learn more and more. When we had our second child, Harry, I came in full time because you can't go on tour with, mm-hmm. you know, for eight weeks with 20 guys around Europe with two children. So that really was not seeming like too much of a practical career at this time. So, uh, yeah, so from then, and then we just grew, you know, we've we've been really, really fortunate with the support of the brands that we work with. We haven't ever bought in um, products that uh, – there is a New Zealand equivalent of like when we bought in Seedlip, the world's first non-alcoholic spirit, there was no non-alcoholic spirit to mm. launch in New Zealand. So it really started that that whole category and that whole discussion. And Seedlip was so great because not only did it give us a full education in the alcohol industry that we had no idea about uh, at the time, we were also able to get it as the first product as a spirit into supermarkets and it was such a disruptor and such a problem solver. That's what I love about Seedlip is it's a problem solver. People when they're not drinking shouldn't be given a sugary drink or a water. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so I think Seedlip was also a really big turning point in Cook and Nelson because we loved the fact that we could bring in products that challenged how do you go down that path of identifying the the disruptors, the 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 products that have got really great unique stories, the ones that don't have a New Zealand equivalent? Can you talk to me a little bit about that? Is it, are you just on a great big hide and seek search and seek mission around the world? Yeah, I mean it's a really it's actually really hard. Um, but but the easiest way I can describe it is because I always take everything back to music because that's where my roots lie is. When you're listening to a song on a radio and you know it's a hit, you don't think, oh, it's the chord of progression or you don't think so much about the the way the verse is constructed. You just listen to it. It makes you feel good and you want to keep listening to it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It's the, old, it's the old PD 30 seconds play. Like if it yeah. doesn't, nobody <laughs> waits for the chorus. It's just like, oh, if it's not vibing 30 seconds in, that's it, ditch it. It's off to, it's off to derail. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And so I feel that what we do is very um, intuitive and very much like that. Um, and the products that we bring in, they have to bring in discussion. They have to do something better. You know, they have to um, just make, you know, make the category, if a category isn't in there, create it or um, expand it into some way. Um, so that's how we get, there's a lot of products that I'd love to bring in, but it's, you know, once you add all the shipping costs that mm-hmm. may be too expensive to be on shelf. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's something that you've got to take on. Um, a lot of the times that uh, brands want to work in a certain territory before they come to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. So we have to patiently wait. So mm-hmm. there may be quite a few conversations going on with brands at a time 
And then there are other times where a brand would tick every single box you could imagine for a Cook and Nelson product, but there's just not, there's just no X factor about it or there's something that we don't want to bring. So we're actually very fussy because unlike most distributors who just bring in a product and put the product into supermarkets and things like that, we actually like a record label. Mm-hmm. We do the marketing, we do the, uh, you know, the team does the PR, we do the social, we do all the digital ads. There's, you know, we really feel like we're the New Zealand home for each brand that we bring in. So yeah. it takes a lot of energy and a lot of investment. Sorry, that's my dog. Welcome to lockdown. <laughs> he tells us every time the courier arrives. Um, so we feel that um, to bring in a brand, you know, we we want to give it everything we've got. All of the products have great branding. They they tell really great stories. They have a uniqueness about them on the shelf. Um, but there's uniqueness to the to the chocolate only story. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah. So Tony's chocolate only is such a joy to represent into New Zealand because not only are they trying to do they create 100% slave free chocolate, they are on a mission to force other chocolate companies to do the same globally. And um, there's an amazing series on Netflix called Rotten. And there's an episode called Bitter Chocolate that delves deep into this and talks about Tony's being the chocolate company that is bringing change. Um, Again, this is an example of how long it takes to get a brand into New Zealand. So two years of discussion. Mm. We finally got it here end of last year. And um, Tony, uh, it's Tony's Lonely Fight Against Chocolate. So that's what the name means, Tony's Choco Lonely. And um, all the pieces are unequally divided to show the inequality of the cocoa industry. So in a sense, you open a beautiful, bright, Willy Wonka-style chocolate wrapper, and on the inside it talks about, you know, the the horrific slavery that's in cocoa, 1.8 million children um, at the moment. And then you open these bars, which are all different sizes, and you literally eat the metaphor. Mm. Um, but and it's such a cool story how Tony started. So um, Tony's a journalist out of out of the Netherlands and was doing an investigative story on uh, chocolate. Mm-hmm. And he found out how horrible it was and how much slavery of children was, was in cocoa. So ate a chocolate bar in front of a policeman and got himself arrested. And then it took it to the high court. And at the high court, he got found not guilty for, you know, endorsing uh, child slavery. Um, but it got so much awareness and so much publicity for um, the cocoa industry that, um, well, you know, to for for people to understand what's going on in the cocoa industry, that they created the first bar, which is the Tony's Chocolate Only Milk Bar, in bright red. So it shows how alarming it is, what's mm-hmm. happening, and did it as a PR exercise. And then it has just grown and grown and grown to be, you know, one of the most um, – you know, interesting, one of the most trusted brands in the world, Tony's is. It's beautiful Belgium chocolate, so it tastes amazing, um, and it's doing good. Um, Nick has the brilliant job, my husband Nick, of doing all of the logistics, and he works with all the shipping and all the ordering in advance, and it's quite, you know, with Tony's chocolate only, because of the ethos of the brand, you can't have any waste. Mm. So everything's made to order. So our orders are done six months before they land. They have to be in six months before they land in New Zealand. So there's quite a lot of um, skill, I would have to say, in in figuring out what's going to happen, when the new shelves are coming on, and things like that. So, um, yeah, luckily Nick gets to do that. And then I say I get to do the fun stuff, which is the marketing. 
um, with the team. But yeah, out of everybody in the team, I probably talked to Nick the least. But yeah, so for us, we're just all in on everything. The kids, work, life, marriage, it's just all in. And that really, really works really well for us. So um, we're a Taurus and an Aries, so we're both quite stubborn, but uh, seems to seems to work. New Zealand is an, it's primarily driven as an export economy, and yet we import a lot of products in. And so to be an importer in New Zealand means an awful lot of reliance on lots of external parts of a global system, things like shipping and transportation and freight. And you have an instance like COVID where, you know, obviously that's a, that's a disruption at a global, global level. What are some of the considerations or things that people perhaps don't see going on behind the product on a shelf once it lands here? Um, so talk to me a little bit about how you manage or the challenges that you face around some of those transportation and shipping uh, issues as they've rolled out in the last couple of years? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that always gets me is at 6am when Nick's on the phone on a bidding war to buy a container space on a truck to get to a boat, you know, so in a place before COVID where, you know, uh, containers had their own flow, they were meant, they meant to be you know, from February last year when, when everything started in Wuhan and from there, the, the container flow has never really caught up. So, you know, in some ports they've got too many containers and in other ports they've got no containers. So Nick is on bidding wars with the US, live auctions, trying to find space, you know, which really increases um, costs. We've got a lot of union activity happening in America at the moment. So there are huge delays on that as well. Plus um, the shipping costs have just you know, you know, over four to six times what they used to be. So, uh, sorry, the um, trucking costs across America. So, um, you know, and then you've got your delays at port. Um, mm. So we had a shipment that just got caught up in an Asian port for six weeks. So it was meant to be here now and it's going to be here six weeks later. And there's literally nothing you can do. So um, I think, you know, again, we just have to order really, really far in advance. And we have to, um, just be ready. I think what COVID has taught us the most and that what Nick and I talk about the most is that there's so much outside of your control that you just have to at some point go with the flow. Like if we have, you know, God forbid we're off the shelf, you know, hopefully it's only a few weeks, but uh, at least it's something that all the supermarkets are aware of. They all know, you know, as long as your communication is really, really great with the um, with the stores and and all the restaurants or whatever, and you know you can plan as much of advance, and then yeah, you've just got to go with it. Mm. Uh, any kind of long term vision of what the impacts may or may not be on consumers then, because obviously that's I think what everybody's concerned about is at what point do do prices inevitably go up, and therefore things become either untenable or the market shrinks for for people like yourselves. Yeah, I mean, we're really fortunate in the fact that we haven't had to um, increase our prices um, on on retail products and we will, you know, just continue to go there. I think the current position of the New Zealand dollar against the US, especially for the pickles, is is really fortunate because if this was a couple of years ago with the dollar's fluctuation back then, um, it might be really different. But yeah, we, we do all we can to um to try and keep our costs and you know it may be that we have to do a bigger order so we go from a 20 foot container to a 40 foot container and you know and that's just what we might have to do to keep the cost where it is but that's that's just something that as a business we want to try and um 
try and maintain as much as we can. Uh, you know, one of the things that I really loved about that chat was the focus on finding products that weren't in the New Zealand market yet. You know, things that were really quite unique, that were quite different. And I think the McClure's Pickles story is a really good example of that. Um, but also Seedlip, you know, one of the first, internationally one of the first non-alcoholics um, to be available and, and one of the first that was available in the market here. And I just think the other thing that's really interesting to me, and and I guess, you know, we both have a marketing background, Vincent, the, that kind of role, the crossover hybrid role that they're playing as not just a food importer, but really uh, kind of a brand voice for those brands here Mm. in New Zealand, much more of a partner when it comes to representing, you know, the ideology behind each of those unique brands. We have so much emphasis on food exporting in New Zealand, and that's good. You know, we are a neat exporter of food. But actually, to be an exporter, you also have to be an importer because, you know, it's it doesn't uh, it's a two way situation. And I think the exciting thing about about what they're doing and, and imports in general is that, you know, we get to see and taste and experience things that otherwise just would not be available in New Zealand due to seasonal conditions or due to our, um, you know, our lack of scale. So, yeah, really great to, to see. And um Uh, We wish them well. Indeed. And now for a little food trivia. I'll have you know that Sunday, October the 10th, was World Porridge Day. So how do you like your porridge? Are you an overnight oats, a quick cook, a steel cut or a solid sludge type of a porridge human? Which one are you? Well, I find that everything turns to sludge eventually. Uh, But I have a technique. I I learned it from, it was called Pops Porridge. Learned it from my father-in-law, which is always to start with cold water. So uh, you sprinkle the oats on top of the cold water and then you slowly bring it to the boil. And of course you stand there and stir it like mad so it won't stick. And this is the only way then mixed with nuts and uh raisins or sultanas and brown sugar perhaps a uh, a little splash of milk or cream lewis road cream mm. there you go interesting i have been in the past a porridge um a porridge fan i like a relatively um you know a relatively mm. gloopy i'm not a mm-hmm. sludge fan mm-hmm. you know you want there to be a little bit of texture mm-hmm. and movement and it's somewhat like risotto mm-hmm. i think you know, um, but these days I am quite a fan of, you know, if I do go for oats, I'm going for the overnight mm-hmm. oats. You know, a little bit of apple, a little bit of berries in there, a little bit of oats, boom, boom, mm. off you go. I'm not I'm not a fan of overly sweet oats, though. You know, so, you know, I mean, gone are the days of sludging brown sugar and maple syrup or golden syrup on top. Not, no, 100% not all the way with that. All the way. No, 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 no. With no. a strong coffee? No, if you're going to have... If you're going to have brown sugar and oats together, then I firmly believe that it should be in a ginger snap or an antique biscuit. Well, you know, all the above. Throw it in. Delicious. <laughs> Tell us what happened in 1966. Uh, look, I couldn't help but include this. The, uh, 19, 1966, this week, uh, Simon and Garfunkel released their album Parsley, Sage, Rosemary and Thyme. Uh, and uh, on a slightly different foodie theme. And in 2006, the Six Flags theme park in Gurney, Illinois, held a live cockroach-eating contest, which, but also, mm, because I've said for a while now, the future of protein is, in fact, insects. Uh, Well, yeah, absolutely it is. But please, dried, flavoured, turned into something else, you know, a supplement. But honestly, live cockroaches, for goodness (laughs) sake. What's wrong with people? Uh, and with that delightful thought, whether it's porridge or cockroaches, we're out. We'll see you no. next week. Bye.